it's it's that kind of like classic practice element mixed with kind of a cord cutting streaming service all mashed into one where it's really healthcare on demand. Hello, welcome to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar with Rehab U Practice Solutions. We are the creators of the Market Penetration Roadmap. If you want to learn more about that, head on over to strategy.rehabupracticesolutions.com. Enough of that. Moving on. Okay. So we have had a few conversations recently, probably four or five of the last recent episodes were on valuing a business, starting a business, merging acquisitions, all in the private healthcare space. And in the past, like very early on, maybe episode like three or four of this podcast, we're up to, this is episode 86 now, I think. So we're, this was a, a while back. We had a conversation with a unique type of private healthcare practice, mainly the direct primary care space. So that first episode was with Dr. Rob Lamberts, who's a great guy, full of wisdom, full of just business acumen, and um, just a vision of what healthcare should and could be. So I'll link to that original, um, that original conversation in the show notes. You can go back and hear how bad the audio was back then <laughs> um, and how bad of an interviewer I felt like I was. Um, anyways, this, for the next couple episodes, we're going to be covering uh, DPC 2.0, if you would, just kind of updating the conversation, talking with a couple people in the space, uh, both providing support for direct primary care providers and then a couple of direct primary care providers themselves, and maybe even talk a little bit about how this model can work in other subspecialties and other sub sub areas of practice like physical or occupational therapy, chiropractor, um, orthopedics, you know, uh, other medical specialties. So this week, my guest is Christopher Habig. He is the co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks, and Freedom HealthWorks basically helps doctors launch independent practices in the DPC space. Essentially, they help with practice management, some of the marketing, some of those uh, virtual enrollment, if you would, um, clinical staff that can be done outsourced via telehealth. They help with financial bookkeeping and analysis and, and all that. They've kind of taken the headache away from starting the practice and they kind of have the roadmap in place and they help doctors do that, go about starting a direct primary care practice. So this conversation, we talk a little bit about that. We talk a little bit about direct primary care, the actual ins and outs of running one of those types of practices, but we do pull it back at the very beginning, kind of high level overview, what is DPC or direct primary care? How can it influence or impact clinical outcomes? What does it do for provider burnout? What does it do for incentive alignment? You know, in the book, Better Outcomes, A Guide to Humanizing Healthcare, 
one of the chapters in the book on value-based care or discussing the value that clinicians bring to the table, one of the things that I talked about or wrote about in that chapter was about the misalignment of incentives that takes place in a fee-per-service business model where the clinician is getting paid for either the, the amount of time or the number of treatments uh, CPT codes that are billed to the insurance company. So it incentivizes clinicians to spend more time than is necessary sometimes with patients or to upcharge or bill you know, nickel and dime in order to get reimbursement back at the level that they need to keep their lights open. So there are some other alternative models out there, you know, bundled payments, value-based reimbursement programs, merit and safety, merit uh, incentives, um, and performance incentives, shared savings incentives. DPC, or direct primary care, functions on a subscription or a membership model. And if you go back to our conversation with Ron Baker and Ed Kless about innovation in healthcare, they talked about subscription being real, true value-based care because what it does, whenever you have a, a subscription model in place, you are no longer, that third party is no longer in the picture, one. But then two, what it does is it puts the relationship between provider and recipient at the forefront because if that relationship isn't working, then the patient or the client is going to go somewhere else. They're going to stop the subscription. So it incentivizes the provider or the person charging that subscription, in this case, a DPC, a direct primary care physician or provider, um, to really make sure that they are doing everything that is necessary to provide perceived, real perceived value on the part of the patient. Also, we talked a little bit about in this conversation and in the the one next week that we'll have with a direct primary care provider who runs a practice, just some of the differences that come about because of direct primary care, some of the research showing decreased cost, decreased risk of surgery, and all of that. So hopefully this is a good conversation for you to listen to and to kind of get some ideas about ways that we can innovate within the practice of delivering healthcare services, right? So without further ado, here's Chris Habig from Freedom HealthWorks talking about direct primary care practice management. Well, hey, Chris, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Rafi. Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. Awesome. I'm excited to talk with you about Freedom HealthWorks, about direct primary care. But before we do any of that, just give us a quick rundown who you are and then what brought you to doing what you're doing now. My name is Christopher Habig. Uh, I like to think of myself as just being very curious about the, the way the world works and, and that has led me to kind of self-label as a problem solver. So right now, professionally, I am uh, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom Health Works. We are a direct care community across the United States empowering physicians to tear down the roadblocks and barriers for patient access, advocacy, and affordability by using membership medicine or what's known as the direct primary care model. So it's been a long road getting here, but uh, you know, we like to be opportunistic and we really like to help people. We see, we see problems uh, in healthcare and we're like, you know what, this is something that we should return control back to patients and physicians. And so that's what we're doing. Yeah. And for those who might not have heard, what is direct primary care? That is kind of going, hopping back to your time machine, going yeah. back to like the 1960s and like the old school <laughs> Norman Rockwell, like a doctor making a house call, um, 
you know, taking care of everybody. It, uh, it's, it's that kind of like classic practice element mixed with kind of a cord cutting streaming service all mashed into one where it's really healthcare on demand. Um, you know, the hallmarks of it are increased accessibility. You're doing same day, next day visits. The doctor actually knows you. You have the ability to text uh, your doctor, uh, yeah. symptoms, that kind of stuff. And a lot of it is just peace of mind. So, um, you know, functionally, what a direct primary care practice does is they charge you a membership for belonging to the practice. Um, these doctors will downgrade or downscale their uh, patient panel from about 2,500 in insurance-based practice to maximum about 500. And that is really kind of the upper limit of how many human beings we can actually understand and know the names yeah. of and get to know on a, on a really kind of surface level. Um, so max number 500 patients. Nationally, it's about $85 a month for all you can eat primary care or all you can access primary care. Probably be a better uh, analogy yeah. for it. And... <laughs> What it does is allow the physician to really enjoy practicing medicine again, gives them quality of life back, and it really helps out. Like I said, I, I, it's a new experience for patients to really enjoy going to the doctor and with more of an emphasis and incentive on maintaining their health. Um, I like to tell people that this is the only healthcare model out there that is built for all plans. We take, the, we take uninsured, we take underinsured, we take commercial paid, we take Medicare, we take Medicaid. All of it works because those barriers to joining a doctor and accessing a doctor are gone. Yeah. They're absolutely gone. So you're not penalized for the copay anymore. You're not penalized with a three-week wait. You don't really care how coinsurance works. You don't really care if you say the wrong thing about your knee hurting and now your preventive visit is no longer a preventive <laughs> visit and you get a surprise bill later on. So there's just so much garbage in healthcare that makes it a miserable patient experience where most people would throw up their hands and be like, you know what, I'm never even going to call the doctor again and roll the dice. We're trying to change that. And we are changing that on a very fundamental basis for doctors and patients. So kind of a long-winded yeah, uh, uh, explanation there, Rafi, but hopefully the hallmarks of that came across that, you know, um, just like somebody doesn't need 500 cable channels and paying too much for it, I can go and join Netflix and watch a movie that I want to watch whenever I want to watch it, wherever I want to watch it. The same principle applies to healthcare services. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I think the, the thing that is so cool about it is that by nature of these physicians being the way they are, right, they're not accepting insurance. A lot of times they've, many of them have opted out of like Medicare or something like that as well, that they're the barrier of, a pre-authorization or a denied visit or, or whatever it happens to be goes away because the relationship now is no longer being mediated. And this is the problem in healthcare, right? Like in a normal economic exchange, you give me a cup of coffee and I give you a couple bucks and we shake hands and walk away. In healthcare, I want the cup of coffee for you, but I got to ask my buddy Sam, who doesn't really know me at all and just, you know, make him a list of his customers. Um, he's got to broker the deal. And sometimes he's going to pay for all of the cup of coffee and sometimes only pay for half. And I don't know until after you give me the cup of coffee, right? Like there's just a whole lot of um, people get their, get their fingers in that relationship. So going direct to primary care like this really just prioritize, like you said, the relationship. So um, how does this work? And I love what? It, and and I love, I'm sorry, man. I just got to hop in because I'm a huge coffee uh, geek <laughs> in there and I love your coffee analogy, but 
to throw even nuance in there, like maybe maybe your buddy Sam is only going to pay for the dark roast, not the medium yeah. roast. And don't even think about trying to get the creamer over there because that's going to be a $2,000 creamer. Yeah. And uh, sorry. You want, you want a pump of vanilla? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, I'll check. I'll, I'll send you the bill. I'm going to give it to you, but I'm going to send you the bill in six months. And I can't tell you how much it costs. So it's less like go all in on that example. And I love it. I love it. <laughs> so from a standpoint of, okay, the the patients, you know, you did a good job explaining what the patients are getting out of this, right? They're, um, they're getting a access to their physician. They're getting more one-on-one. Do you have any uh, clinicians that you speak with, like doctors and nurse practitioners that are wanting to get into this model that are worried about the idea of maybe moral hazard like what happens if we give somebody an all-access pass like are they going to be texting me at all hours of the night you know what what level of demand is going to be placed on my services because maybe now i'm only seeing 500 patients or they're you know my caseload is only 500 but now they you know text me twice as much or whatever it's a very popular question and i love explaining it because you know, from a patient standpoint, when they join a new practice, they are so conditioned to never actually being able to talk to somebody, not getting called back, not getting questions answered, that they will continue to call and call and call and call. And I'll be damned if it's 3 a.m. I'm going to call and call and call and call and call and call. When you actually join one of these practices and you call that first time and your doctor answers the phone, like people are blown away. I've seen it on people's faces before. And I've talked to doctors who are just like, my patient was almost apologetic. They're like, oh my God, I, I didn't actually think I'd get through. So I'm just going to keep trying. <laughs> I am so sorry to bother you. And the doctor's like, no, no, no. I'm glad you called me. I want to be your first resort. I'm your first line of defense against anything. What's going on? And when you talk about it that way, and it's just like once patients understand that you are there for them, that your brand promises and your val- your core values, like they're listed on your website and your practice are actually true. Yeah it's like this this wave of relief come around and be like oh wow you you are going to actually be there when i need you um maybe this time wasn't as important and your doctor will walk you through that and a lot of you know the after hours and the weekend care is just a lack of education which means a lack of time spent with a physician and and a patient because what i think is you know um, um you know an issue that needs i'm oh my gosh I, i need to go to the er i'm gonna call my doctor real quick doctor might say hey, look, this is what's actually going on. This is not a problem. This is normal. Um, I always tell people that, you know, when they when they have their first kid, I don't understand how people have that first child and, and don't either lose their hair or all go completely gray without having a doctor on speed dial just to tell you this is normal yeah, when exactly. it comes to ch- children and infants and stuff. So that's half the battle. It's peace of mind. And, you know, that goes with trust. That goes with the relationship. So... From a physician standpoint, quality of life skyrockets, absolutely skyrockets, because you're not taking 30 charts home. You're not answering calls at 2 a.m. I mean, you can if you want to, but you don't have to anymore. And very few patients, or hardly any, will ever call you when you're on vacation and you treat people like adults and say, hey, Rafi, rest of my patients. I'm going to go to Florida for five days, maybe a week, whatever it is, two weeks. If it's an emergency, call 911. If it's not an emergency, you kind of know what's going on. Get your uh, get your refills uh, by this date. Otherwise, I'm going to be accessible, but I'm going to be checking messages like, I don't know, twice where I'm down there. And guess what? People respect the hell out of that. Yeah. It's like a psychological switch. <laughs> like, like once you know it's there, uh, it's not an emergency. I don't need it anymore. And 
I can't tell you how many doctors have yelled at patients, be like, don't apologize. Don't, don't think you're wasting my time. I want you to call me. I want you to use me just in case, you know, there's, there's something there that we do need to escalate this. But yeah, I'm glad you texted me. I'm glad you kept me up to date about it. And, and that's how, you know, my family uses our DPC physician a lot is just saying, hey, just make sure your doctor's aware of it. Because half the time, she probably doesn't need to know about it, but she's thankful because if something does happen down the line, we can understand the entire environment yeah. and make sure that there are no complications to medication or OTC that you know we might have adverse reactions to or diet plans, that type of stuff. We're able to keep our primary care doctor abreast of all that. She loves it, but nobody else really has that experience with an insurance-based pro- like practice. Yeah. Nobody. Well, and how much of that too, like the, it's on the patient side and the, and the doctor side where there's just, we come out into, the, into this relationship, this DPC model with all this baggage from, from healthcare gone by, right? Like these doctors, are, they're coming from an organization probably, unless they went right out of school into direct primary care, where they were seeing you know, 80, 90 patients a day, they were taking all these charts home. So there's like an, a built up anxiety, but at the same time, they don't know any other model, right? So how much of like your work with physicians are you trying to like coach them through like, no, there will be people that will still see you like you don't you're not tied to the insurance model because I think there's some there's some level of the insurance is what pays my bill. Why would I ever walk away from it? You know, like I hate what I'm doing. It stinks. I'm getting burnt out, but I can't see another way out. There's a, a, um, a mindset that is prevalent amongst the medical community and the physicians that independent practice is dead yeah and that's just that's that's what is being taught right now in medical schools um you know with medical schools there's this emphasis that uh, if you go to some of the more elite medical schools like we don't produce primary care doctors we only produce surgeons and this kind of stuff so there's like this big stigma and there's a point for me going into this that you know the teaching hospitals and the teaching schools are at the crux of this um you know to kind of like to kind of flip that around a little bit when i talk to a doctor and they're like you know i'm like did you have any business experience before and they're like well we had one business class in medical school and it was all just just looking out how to code yeah yeah i'm like wait a minute that's didn't they teach you at least like how to balance a checkbook <laughs> well no they kind of we had some of that in high school but you know nothing nothing here i'm like wow you're setting people up for failure and so you know when you walk through that entire journey and they think that well, insurance base is the only way to go, and that's how they're doing it, right? They're, they're trying to figure out how to code certain procedures this versus this for maximum reimbursement. There's such a conflict of interest that exists, and I don't think enough doctors really see that. I mean, how many hospitals are really strong-arming their doctors that say, hey, primary care, you're just a really expensive triage, and <laughs> you know, most hospitals lose $150,000 to $200,000 a year on a primary care doctor because they know that that one primary care doctor is going to lead to $5 million in referrals for specialists and surgeries. I mean, there's something so fundamentally broken that when you finally do open their eyes about this, they're like, hey, you're kind of of an accessory to this. They're like, holy cow, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. I want to go do my own thing over here. I want Freedom HealthWorks to help me start a DPC up there. But what do I do? because so many of them have this addiction to salary. Yeah. And it's comfortable. Then they get loaded up with debt and they get, you know, they all these things, all these factors come into play 
And so, you know, it's the really smart ones and savvy ones. I guess smart's the wrong word. They're all going to be very intelligent people. The savvy ones that say, you know what? I don't want to just be in this hamster wheel, get loaded up with boats and cars and houses and be living paycheck to paycheck. I, I think that's the biggest thing that shocked me from this industry, Rafi, is how many physicians, the best and brightest of our community, the most empathetic, the people actually going out there and devoting their life to caring for other people are living paycheck to paycheck when we think of physicians as, you know, kind of like the one percenters of the world that have so much cash. And so all that comes down to the business savvy of it that, you know, they look at insurance and Medicare as this safety net, when in reality, all it is doing is impairing patient care. And once they're out of that, not a single one wants to ever go back. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of friends that own a a direct primary uh, care practice. And I was talking to them the, a little bit ago. It's like, oh, I would never go back. I, there's not a chance in hell that I would ever go back to doing insurance space. And their main reason was the, well, the time thing was huge. But, you know, uh, Davis was telling me, like, when was the last time you had a 45-minute appointment with your direct primary care physician? Like, never in the U.S., right? But all of his patients, when they come in for their first, like, when they're establishing it's a 45 minute to an hour appointment so that he can sit down and figure out what's going on with them and take into the into account all of their past medical history. It's not like he's stuck reading a chart and he's got 15 minutes and then he's got to get out of there. Um, and I think that is so big for for clinicians that have that are used to probably running at the point of burnout to being like, oh, I get some breathing room and I get to actually care about my patient, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And you look at like suicide rates, you talk about burnout. I think um, I think that's more the moral, moral injury than anything is that we are redlining our doctors, the people that are responsible for taking care of us, all of us. We're redlining them. And so what does that do to their judgment? What does that do to their motivation to actually take the best care and get to know me as a person and understanding that my DNA is, is completely unique. There's not another me yeah. out there. You know, this isn't an assembly line. We're not going to be making Toyotas and Lexuses like some hospitals try to make it out to be, right? Everybody is completely unique. So a medication that works for you is not going to work for me in the exact same ways. There's a lot of similarities, a lot of patterns, but that's why it's the practice of medicine. It's always evolving. It's an art mixed with science. It's, it's kind of like the intersection of those two. And that's why it takes unique people. That's why not everybody can do it. And that's why they're so well compensated usually because not everybody in the world can do this type of thing and have that type of mindset. So yeah, I, I, I totally understand what you get from it. And time and time again, when I ask doctors, I go, I, I love talking about like quality. Quality of care yeah. is like my big thing because I have conversations with, with chief medical officers and I go, hey, what, is, what do you actually do as a chief medical officer at your hospital? And they'll give me a great answer. They'll be like, oh, I'm a liaison between our physician for, you know, forces uh, and workforce and our, our administration to make sure that uh, the doctors are happy, but we're also meeting all of our quality of care metrics and all this kind of stuff and pushing our, you know, our, our vision of the hospital forward. And they go, great. I go, curious, what, is, what does quality of care mean to your administration? And, he, and, the, and the honest ones will laugh and say, well, it's, it's whatever Medicare and the insurance companies tells us it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, the first time I heard that, I, my jaw hit the floor. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I go, what do your doctors think about that? They said, well, none of my doctors have actually asked how we define quality. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it goes back to that idea of, like, we've got bureaucrats running healthcare a lot of times, right? These people that they're not clinicians. They're, you know, 
they're either appointed yeah. or they're MBAs. They're making decisions based off spreadsheets, right? Totally, but I, but Rafi, I, I, I feel strongly that there is a willful, ig- willful ignorance in the medical community that they've gotten comfortable just being employed in hospitals. Oh, yeah. and I just, I just want to be an employee now, and it's, well, they're selling me see patients, and they just kind of put kind of the ostrich burying their head in the sand. And you know, I, a lot of times I'll tell doctors, I'm like, if 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 a patient walks into your office and you recommend a flurry of tests and, and, and imaging and you know referrals, and you don't know the price of that or what that's gonna do to them financially, you're part of the problem. Because so many doctors are just like neglectful from a pricing standpoint. They say, well, I'm just gonna make sure I take the best care out of this person, not even thinking about if that puts them in a bankruptcy or not, which is happening across the United States. It's the number one driver of bankruptcy is healthcare costs. Oh, wow. That's interesting. <laughs> well, part of that is because nobody knows, right? Nobody knows the cost. Um, uh, yeah, the the highest growth of bankruptcy are fully insured patients with medical bills. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy to me. So, um, I guess, what do you say to a a physician? Because I'm sure they're all coming to you saying, "I want more freedom. I want to be able to do this. I want to set the practice." How do I do it? I've been, I've worked for a hospital based. Uh, family care practice for you know 10 years and I don't know the first thing about setting up a primary care practice what like what do you have like a list that you give them like here tr- focus on XYZ and do this that and the other to get at least foundationally on the, on the right foot uh, there are lists out there there's some great checklists if people want to go out there that do it themselves um, you know we call it the the DIY crowd and I'm their biggest cheerleader like if you can do it on your own great if you need help um, then call us. Yeah. That's what we do. So, you know, from Freedom HealthWorks, we'll we'll put our incubator hat on, and so we'll help you go through those steps of starting a business. Our process about ninety days from start to finish. Oh, all right. We will teach you how to be a best business person. We will actually, our team is in place, pushing buttons and pulling levers for you. So when you join our program, you actually have a team that's executing things for you. So we're going to get every all your paperwork together and say here's this is what you need need your signature great we're going to send this over to our vendor relationship they have like your freedom health works like office supplies box that shows up at your office same thing with you know vendors we're like okay you know we have all the major vendors like here's our prices here's our cash prices over here you get to buy into our book of business which saves you hours and headaches yeah. and all that kind of thing um and we do all the branding, all their websites, their logos, everything like that, how to talk about it. We do a lot of sales training. And so what finally when their practice is able to start, you know, we're kind of in the background. We're operating in the background more of a white label service than anything. Yeah. We'll take our incubator hat on, all right? And then we'll put um, it's really more of our kind of a kind of a growth hat on. Like you know, like we'll put our management hat on and say, Awesome. We have services to enable your back office and your front office so that you don't actually need to go out and hire four or five, six different people, rely on us to do that. Technology has come such a long way where we could pretty much do everything except for draw blood for a patient. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's some things you're gonna have to have a need on, or a hands-on approach to. And then, you know, once we're around that, we connect you with other physicians in our community across the nation so that you're not alone. Um, I think that's the big, one of the biggest drawbacks of returning back to independent medicine is that it can get a little lonely because if you're in there, you know, you're in practice all day talking with patients and maybe you have one employee, that's about all you need with the full practice. 
sometimes you get a little lonely and you yeah. need that camaraderie. You need that, that physician lounge again. So we try to connect people um, in different ways if you don't quite have that social network that, you know, because you've been working 14 hours a day at a, at a hospital. So, it, you know, it's, it's an incubator, but a lot of that is training and a lot of that is just showing them that they can do it, like instilling confidence that you are making the right decision, you know, for your patients but also for you and for your family. And Rafi, I can tell you how many times that I, I kind of walk through our process and what we do and what we believe with a doctor on a video call. And I can like physically see them, like their posture improving, <laughs> like their storm clouds have parted there. I'm like, doc, you get to build your dream practice. As a primary care doctor, you're not just a white lab coat and a stethoscope. You're not a commodity. You're not a list on some insurance company's website for people to click through and see when they can get in. like. We're putting your pictures up there. We're putting your family up there. We're putting, you know, what you want to specialize in. We're injecting your personality into the practice again. Primary care is absolutely a specialty field. Oh, yeah. And it drives me nuts when someone's like, oh, we have primary care, then we have specialists over here. No, no, no. Those are non-primary specialists over here, but primary care is absolutely a specialty. And all too often, we've discounted these doctors and, and even nurse practitioners, we've discounted them that, you know what, you're very expensive data clerks. You're just triage so that we can go make money off of the cardios and all of the, the, the endocrinologists, those people. Like, that's cute primary care doctor. Let's just send them up the, uh, send them up the specialist, uh, you know, the non-primary specialist pipeline. And, um, you know, thanks a lot. Here's a pat on the back. Yeah. And go, go make sure you hit all your, your, your quality metrics, you know, in bunny years there. And uh, we'll see if you have a job next year. But appreciate your service. Yeah, no, I do think it's a... These, these are the people, they're, they're the gateway a lot of times into other things, but the reality is they should be like the first line of managing your health, of helping you manage your health. And we don't view them that way. They can do so much. Oh, they can do so much. Like a generalist is, you have range, right? Like there's so many things that you can handle at primary care level from, you know, heart issues. Mental health is yeah. a huge underserved uh, function of primary care. Everybody's like, oh, I need a psychiatrist or a psychologist. You're like, no, you don't. Maybe you just need somebody to talk to that can deal with anxiety or depression that affects the vast majority of Americans before escalating into something more serious. Like more primary care can yeah. handle so many different things if given the time. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of metrics out there and, and research that supports um, using direct primary care, right? Like it, it decreases the, um, the amount of non-necessary... Uh, lab tests or medical tests or even ER visits, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, anywhere up to like 80% less surgeries yeah. for DPC patients. And and part of that, again, is how hospitals make money. I, I've talked to a handful of surgeons who are like, you know, Chris, I was under the gun that one in three people who came to my office for a surgery consultation were getting surgery. I was supposed to send them to surgery whether they needed it or not. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, no. Whether the like you know DME, uh, you know durable medical equipment or just therapy, would have been fine. I mean, you talk to a physical therapist and they're like, no, no insurance plan out there gives people enough sessions beyond what they you know uh, for what they actually need. Like, I'll recommend 15 sessions. Insurance pays for seven. Guess who I see next year? Yeah, that person's coming back. So there's like so many, exactly. just so much just waste, and I don't necessarily want to have my tin tinfoil hat on, but. Yeah, there's a lot of area, like a lot of a lot of things in medicine where patients lose because it is so opaque, yeah. and it's hard to have an educated consumer coming into it. Because if you Google symptoms, it's 
usually you, you something horrible is yeah. happening to you and there's a, a myriad of different things right so kind of back what i said it's like an art and science that all these things add up and you don't have to be dr house to to put the put the pieces together there uh by any means but yeah it's it's all these studies you talked about have proven that time with a doctor saves specialists specialists because primary care can handle a lot of those things it saves on surgeries because you can find alternative treatments it actually just saves flat out on dollars because you're actually able to shop now you know there's cash surgery centers that are lowering the cost and doing surgery for like 10 percent of what a local hospital would do so I, I like to think the dpc creates educated healthcare consumers and those dollars you know seriously add up and and i always like it when like a data person says well you know what, what are all the savings here besides these studies and i said well I got a call from a doctor that saved two Medicare patients from having surgery and pulled one of, one person out of the ER because they didn't need to be there. They were going to charge that to Medicare. How do I quantify that? Exactly. Oh, that's a good that's a good point. So you know, there's so many things and costs that are being missed, which is a good thing. That you know, time and time again, people are like, "Well, show me the data that DPC exists," and it exists. It's slow coming. We could do more. I will be the first person to say that because it would certainly help my business, but <laughs> there's certain aspects of the human experience that you just cannot quantify with dollars and cents. Yeah, no, for sure. It's um, it's kind of like looking at economic policy in, in general, I mean like, well, you can't quantify the jobs that weren't created, right? For, because of a bad regulation or something. The same thing with with healthcare. I mean, you can, you can see what happened last year and compare that to this year, and maybe it went down a little bit because of um, direct primary care, but there's no way to be like, no, we, we saved like, this many people from having this specific surgery done or, or whatever, right? Like it, it makes it hard. Well, I, I'm pretty sure the, yeah, I think that, I think the federal government tried to do that in about 2008, 2009 and everybody kind of laughed them out of the, yeah. out of the ballpark here. So I totally, totally agree with you. Only, only the feds would be bold enough to actually try something like that. But yeah, they're, they're real life. And so, um, you know, it, a lot of the stories are just anecdotal and I'm like, look, that's, that's what we have, but it, it's spreading. It's working. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, we're getting near the bottom here. I always ask people um, if there's one or two main points you'd want a listener to walk away with, specifically about direct primary care, either being a patient or being a doctor that's looking at jumping in, into it, um, what would those two points be? From a patient standpoint, if any patient is out there saying, how do I make an impact? I'm just one person. Next time you have a, an appointment or anything like that with any healthcare professional, ask the price that's the biggest thing that you can do you're probably gonna have a lot of puzzled looks and say why well, i'm not sure I'm, I'm not really sure how to do that but if imagine if everybody walked into an office one day and asked the price for everything that was recommended to them that doctor would sure as hell figure it out yeah quickly sooner or rather later because like i'm tired of looking like an idiot when somebody asks me the price of it so if anybody an individual wants to impact medicine and healthcare for the better ask the price uh, for physicians out there if you're struggling and you're like, I'm just not excited to wake up tomorrow and go to the hospital, and there are people who love it, right? I talk to a lot of very happy emergency room doctors because they live for that adrenaline rush and work stays there. If you're a physician who wants to build better relationships, take better care, spend more quality time, there is an option for you. It isn't just revolving around hospitals and employed medicine. Independent medicine is alive. It is thriving. It is possible. And you have some great people like Freedom Health Works out here helping you along the way. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, Chris, where can people find out more about you, about your podcast, and Freedom Works? 
I appreciate you mentioning our podcast because that's uh, that's really how we, we spread those stories anecdotally. So podcast is called Healthcare Americana. It's on all podcast platforms. Company FreedomHealthWorks.com. Um, Google us. I think that's probably the best way to do it. So uh, pretty sure we'll pop up if you Google any version of Freedom HealthWorks out there. And uh, if we can help somebody, then you know what? That makes my day even better. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, Chris, thanks so much. Thank you, Rafi. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Habig talking about direct primary care, the benefits of moving to such a model and what it can do for clinicians, for patients, for payers even, um, across just the span of healthcare service delivery. I think one of the things that he said, going back now and listening to it again, that really makes a lot of sense is from the standpoint of fee-for-service business models and reimbursement, a lot of these direct primary, or these, not direct, a lot of the primary care offices, and even, you know, I've come from the PTOT where a lot of the physical therapy clinics out there have hundreds and hundreds of patients on their caseload. I mean, some direct, some primary care physicians have upwards of, you know, 1,200, 1,500 patients that are technically under their care. And one of the things Chris mentioned is that while doing or moving to a direct primary care model or a membership model means that the number of patients you need to keep that model viable is much lower, somewhere in the three to 400 per, per person or per provider. And what he says is like, it seems intuitive, but it has been missing from the healthcare discussion for a long time is that that's about as many people or humans that you can keep and maintain a relationship with um, without it being totally like you're strangers, right? I mean, even Dunbar's number or Dunbar's theory about that is that, you know, he's sized uh, human groups up into three, three groups, small, medium, and large. And I think he called these like bands, um, cultural groups or something like that, and then tribes or, or something. But they basically broke down to um, somewhere under 100 was a small group, between 100 and 200 was the medium group, and then 500 to about 1,000 was the, the, the largest group that he said was doable. So it would make sense from a relationship standpoint that we would want to compress that for each clinician to be smaller than 1,000, right? Somewhere close to that, maybe at the upper level, four to 500, but really ideally maybe in that two that two to four, two to 300 range, just for the sake of being able to have a relationship, at least a real meaningful relationship with your provider or the provider having that relationship with the, the, the patient receiving the care, right? Um, healthcare ultimately is a human experience and that human experience or the value in healthcare, as, I've all, as I said in the book, Better Outcomes of God in Humanizing Healthcare, and as I tell students that come into the clinic, or students that I used to teach at the university, um, the value in the healthcare exchange is transmitted oftentimes through the relationship, the relationship that you develop with your patients. Um, and that is almost universal across the board, um, that the relationship that you have is going to be the tool by which you are able to affect change in your patients' lives, whether it be advocating for or encouraging, coaching, whatever, healthy lifestyle changes or habits or reducing risk behaviors um, or just getting your patient to adhere to 
a home program or recommend recommendations and lifestyle changes, a lot of that only happens once the patient feels that they can trust you and they feel like there's a relationship there. So I, I, I appreciate that Chris brought it up like, oh yeah, you're able to cut down the number of patients that each clinician needs to see, which means the relationship, it's easier to form those relationships because you're not overwhelmed with the number of people. So anyways, I'm excited about things like direct primary care. And maybe in the next episode, when we talk with um, Davis Mellick about running a direct primary care practice, maybe we'll have a little discussion about how this might have implications for other areas like physical therapy, occupational therapy, chiropractors, maybe even some of those specialty groups. So that's all I've got for now on this episode. If you like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. Helps people find us. Um, If you want to be notified when we drop new episodes, head on over to betteroutcomes.show. That's betteroutcomes.show. Show. Um, and sign up there. We'll shoot you an email with links to the show notes and the episode whenever we drop them. Um, Usually our target is every other week for episodes. Recently, we've just had a bunch of good interviews lined up. So we've been doing them every week. We'll see how that, uh, how that pace unfolds during uh, Q2 of 2023. But um, so I'm not changing anything officially in the description. I'm going to say we're a bi-weekly podcast. Um, but we'll kind of see how it goes moving forward. And if you run a innovative healthcare company that is looking to humanize healthcare and you want help bringing that innovation to market, well, I've got the thing for you. It is called the Market Penetration Roadmap, where we will break down your current positioning and offering. We'll break it down, build it from the ground up to make it attractive to your targeted healthcare stake holder, as you know, or maybe you don't, there are four stakeholders in healthcare, payers, providers, policymakers, and patients. And depending on what your service offering uh, is going to be targeted at or who your service offering is going to be targeted at, you need to have a better messaging and tailored messaging for each stakeholder. As uh, Craig Solid said on a previous podcast episode or interview, um, value to whom is uh, very important, much more important when selling a product than value for whom. If you want to learn more about that, head on over to strategy.rehabupracticesolutions.com. Learn more about the market penetration roadmap, and there's links there to schedule a call with me if you want to have a further discussion. All right. Until the next time, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.